0: Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference Podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Um, So, we've been talking about pervasive discipleship, and we've been talking about developing discipleship ministries that are cultural, that are fully integrated, uh, that are Perpetual, meaning that they are kind of self-sustaining. In other words, the culture itself kind of guides, and even when the, the pastor's eyes aren't on every little detail, they can entrust that the flock is growing, and, and um, you know when things have momentum, uh, you know, how to kind of guide, guide leaders to get developed. And today we're going to talk specifically about a pastoral discipleship. And this excites me the most, this, this particular topic. Excites me the most. Um, and so I'm looking forward to addressing it and, and hopefully uh, make sense of it. Um, so, for the, where I want to start is ministry is, a super, is super busy. It's very, very busy. And one of the things that, uh, especially as I began working with young adults and adult people, one of the things I realized that they ha- a lot of times they have a hard time recognizing just how busy the life of a pastor really is. And so a common thing for a pastor is to get, you know, someone from their congregation reaches out and says, hey, I need to meet. You know, I need to meet. And to, in their mind, it's an emergency, right? It's, there's something pressing to them. Um, and you can't always. You can't, you can't always. I'm like, okay, let me pencil you in two weeks from now. Because I'm, I'm stacked, you know, I've got a conference coming up, I'm, I'm preparing for that, and then we've got a retreat, and I need, to, I need to be able to meet with you, it's probably going to be a week or two. Um, and, and that's hard, no one wants to do that, but the congregation doesn't always understand it, and I didn't always understand it either, how busy the ministry can be. And, uh, and I thought, man, when I went from working full-time at my teaching job, and doing full-time ministry on top of that, and having a family, I thought, oh man, well, as soon as I stop teaching, my calendar will get freed up, and man, pastoring will be so much easier. And the truth is, it's not. It's just, like, it's just as difficult. It's, that calendar gets filled really fast. You get new responsibility. You have more administrative things that you've got to take care of. It's just really difficult. And I think it's really easy for a pastor to say to themselves subconsciously that they don't have time to make deeper investments in their growing leaders. I think it's a really easy thing to do. Now, we won't say it overtly. It won't be something we'd ever verbalize or, you know, but it's something that happens to us just because we're busy and we can't take on one more thing and we think to ourselves, man, I, 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 I can't manage that deep of a relationship right now. I'm, I'm not ready for that and, and so uh, but the that's actually, that situation in our lives as pastors and leaders is actually the reason why we have to make a deeper investment in our leaders. Because there's no way that we will ever be able to get all the things done that God has called us to do unless we're developing pastoral level leaders in our churches to help relieve us of the burden of ministry. So, so. You know, our justifications for not doing it are the exact same justifications for why we should, is the, is the point I'm trying to make. And so, just because we're busy um, does not give us an excuse. We have to be training up the next generation. And uh, as mentioned before, if your discipleship is healthy, the thing that we have to know is that we'll naturally have men rising to the top. Okay, so if our, if our discipleship is everything that it needs to be, It will very naturally produce men that that rise to the surface, that show themselves as faithful, that show themselves as gifted, that show themselves as worthy of deeper investment. It's just going to happen. You're going to look around at your ministry landscape and you're going to notice that there are certain people that just stand out to you. Their countenance stands out to you. The way they deal with people stands out to you. Their consistency stands out to you. And as those men... And women as well, but we're talking primarily about pastoral leadership today. As men rise to the surface, we have to take note of that and we have to consider what it means to make a deeper investment. So how does a pastor disciple? Well, first of all, I think it's really healthy for pastors to always be ready to make a what we would refer to as a biblical discipleship investment, a one-on-one investment in men, especially when your church is smaller. Man, you you know, like, one of the things I've noticed about Dan is, like, Dan is super busy, he's got a full-time job, <clears throat> he's pastoring full-time on top of that, and he's still finding time for one-on-one discipleship. And he's doing he's doing the best he can, and in some cases, he's taking on two guys at the same time, he'll disciple two guys simultaneously because he just has to do that, that's where the church is at, and man, that's incredible, and pastors should always be willing to do that. Pastor Sam is occasionally taking someone through the 18 lessons, right? But there's also another kind of discipleship that's unique to the pastor, and the pastor should always be discipling. It just might look different than the 18 lessons. The pastor should always be discipling. There is a type of discipleship that is unique to the pastorate because it's the pastor's responsibility to produce more pastors. right? They're discipling pastors. So how do we reproduce leadership in a way that protects the DNA of our church is one of the questions that we have today. How do we reproduce leaders that protects the DNA of our church because we can accidentally raise up leaders, give them ministry and trust them, take a risk on them and watch them tear everything down. That happens all the times in churches. We all know those stories and a lot of us have experienced that firsthand. And so how do we disciple men up in a way that protects the DNA of our church, the philosophy of our church, the way we do ministry? that protects the hearts of the people. How do we better the flock by establishing men who are more fruitful and wise than we are? I mean, who doesn't want that for their children? Who doesn't want, like, as I, I have a 10-year-old boy, his name's Shepard. I named him Shepherd very intentionally. I want him to be a better leader than me. He's got more resources than I did. And I'm gonna give him everything I got and if I, if I have to die trying, he will be a better man than me. He just will be. I'm trusting the Lord for that. And if I'm trusting the Lord for that for my son, I can trust that for my ministry too. Because those men are my sons. Those men that follow me, are my, they're my sons. And I care for them with that level uh, and that, that, that level of, of love and intentionality. So how do, how do we better the ministry of our churches? How do we entrust And believe, believe that future generations are going to be better than we are. I think as Baptists, because of of what we've been through uh, in our our churches and just the the history of the way we believe, and we can see uh, men that believe the way we believe, that that it's eroding away. We see the erosion on the horizon. We see that, that that men that believe the book for what it says, with literality, dispensational, KJV, we see an erosion, and so we assume that there will be an erosion overall in the, in the context of our churches. That doesn't necessarily have to be true. Just because it's Laodicea all around us doesn't mean it has to be true in, the body, uh, the, in our local bodies, in our local assemblies. And so we're predisposed to negative thinking. And, I, and if I look back at Matthew 28, I, that's a big commission, and it's still, in, it's still in order. It's still in effect. God thinks that we can do it until the day that he arrives he thinks that we can still do it, at least as in a, local, a local assembly. And so I think we have to believe that the next generation will be better than us and that they're not going to screw things up, that they're going to do better at discipling, that they're going to do better at reaching the community, that they're going to do better at missions, and we've got to train that way. So <clears throat> this is all the stuff that we're going to address today. I'm going to pray again real quick, just so I can trust that the Lord will gather my thoughts and make sure that there's clarity. Dear Lord, we love you. and. Uh, We trust you with this time, and this is big, and there's no way, uh, Lord, that I could possibly convey the things that need to be conveyed this morning. Uh, And the truth is that the things that need to be conveyed have to be conveyed by your Spirit. And there is men and women in this room from all different circumstances, all different church cultures, different stages of development of churches, different resources, and so I can't speak into all those things, but you can speak to hearts, and you can reveal what needs to, needs to be adapted, needs to be changed, perspectives that need to be changed. Um, you can show that. You can reveal that. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just simply use me today um, to, uh, to, to spark uh, something in the hearts and the lives of pastors and leaders in this room. And so, Lord, we trust your word. Uh, we want it to guide us principally. So help us uh, to stay in the white lines. And, Lord, give us freedom. Give us freedom to do the work with joy and excitement, believing that you have greater things ahead of us. We trust this to your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, let's start with the definition. We're talking about establishing a pastoral discipleship. A pastoral discipleship is a discipleship that reproduces pastoral leadership. That's the easiest definition that we'll do. It's pretty straightforward. Pastoral uh, discipleship is a discipleship that reproduces pastoral leadership. A leadership that reproduces leaders. And our first key point is this. Pastors and leaders should be anticipating men with a leadership calling on their life. We should be anticipating it. We shouldn't be afraid of it. We shouldn't, shouldn't be concerned by it. Uh, we need to be discerning about it. Uh, we don't need to be quick to jump the gun. I know for a fact that I felt a burden for pastoral calling on my life before Sam was ready to ordain me. It, and there was, there was years even Uh, before uh, he was ready to ordain me. That's fine. God works that way. And so we need to not be afraid of that. We don't need to feel any pressure to ordain anybody or send anybody out. None of us should feel that. But we should recognize that if we're doing what's right, there will be men in our ministry who might not even know how to verbalize it. We maybe have never given them room to do it. I don't know. But they will be ready uh, in their hearts for something more. And we as pastors need to not be afraid. We need to embrace that idea first and foremost. Now, as we approach training leaders, I believe there are two guiding presumptions that we should all function from. The first one, we've already talked about, and that's this. We know that God wants us to plant churches all over the world. Every single one of us. Every single church represented in the fellowship, God wants us to plant churches all over the world. We'll do that at varying rates based on what God has given us, but the truth is that's what we're supposed to do. And In order to do that, we have to train leaders. Period. Here's another one that we, we, we may or may not think about. Here's another guiding presumption. We know that none of us are going to live forever, and all of us could be standing before the Lord at any moment. And if you were to die today, would your church make it? Would your church survive the passing of the head pastor? Would it be in safe hands? would the church be ready to respond? And I think all of us in this room would agree that if we die tomorrow, we would all like to know that we discipled the guy that would replace us. Rather than knowing or regretting that the church had to hire a guy from the outside who does not have the same DNA, who does not believe the way that you do, and they're just doing their best, and so they found a guy. None of us in this room want that. I think all of us as pastors would like to believe that the person that's re- that, that is replacing us is in the chute. We might not know his name. We not, might not know which guy it is. But he's one of the guys. And we know that because we've been making the investment. We know that they're there. We know that they're present. And we know that the church is going to be in safe hands even if we pass away. And listen, leaders in, in, that are here that aren't pastors, that should be true of your ministries as well. That should be true of the children's ministry responsibilities that you have. It should be true of, of whatever discipleship responsibilities you have. Whatever it is, you should know that if you were to pass away tomorrow, that there's somebody ready to replace you. That's how we train. Now, I also believe that in order to ensure that that happens, it will require a high degree of intentionality on our part to constantly, constantly be establishing leaders year over year, perhaps for decades. And as we begin discipling genera- generationally, as the work is prevalent in our ministries, men will begin to rise to the surface, showing themselves as unique. And from these men, we will be responsible for investing at a higher level. So for the, for the, the, the first question of today, um, the first questions for today, are how do we select these men in our church? How do we select them? How do we, how do, maybe how do we find them and how do we select them? How do we draw them in? How do we know that a guy is predisposed to lead? And as men around us rise to the surface, how do we recognize the character that's necessary for this kind of work? All those are really important questions. And so as discipleship is perpetually happening within our church, we should be observing leaders, particularly those men, and we should be finding and looking for a ministry to filter out. That's what ministry ministry, ministry should do. It should be a filter for leaders. And as ministry is happening, that filtration process is happening. And, and you'll recognize that certain people have certain capacities. And you can see at what point a person thrives at a particular capacity. But sometimes there are men who are unique that have a higher capacity. And they, and they reach beyond what was expe- maybe even what was expected of them in, in said ministry here or there. And as we see that happening, we have to, we have to be looking for particular things. So, so what should we be looking for? We're going to work through a list here real quick, and, and I think all of this stuff is really important. It's not exhaustive. There's probably other things to be looking for. I'm just suggesting something. I'm just suggesting biblical principles that would guide us in terms of determining what, who is qualified to go with us on this journey of pastoral development. The first thing is this, faithfulness. Faithfulness is critical Proverbs 26 says, Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. The Bible's very clear. Faithful men are actually very unique. They're distinct. They stand out. Now, by faithfulness, I think a lot of us struggle with this definition. And I think, a, I think the best definition for this kind of faithfulness that we're talking about here is actually the word virtue. Because virtue is defined as faith that is faithful, right? Virtue is a type of faith, a type of belief that has action behind it. It's trustworthy. It's consistent. It's devoted. It is not afraid to do the thing that it was called to do. It's obedient, is really the word. It's a type of faithfulness that's obedient. And we've got to see that in our men. First Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4.1 says, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. So, so in other words, what we're talking about is men that show themselves to steward in faithfulness. They're responsible. They own it. We talked about stewardship last night, didn't we? I mean, all of us should be convicted about what stewardship looks like. God has given us so many resources and so many things, so many blessings that we're supposed to utilize and leverage for the kingdom's sake. And a lot of us squander them. But when we see a man that's actually leveraging the things that God has given him, that stands out to us. And it should. So if this has to be someone who's consistent to their commitments, this is someone who's devoted to the ministry, this is someone who doesn't complain when they have to do hard things, right? Right? Those are hard to find. This is someone who can see the mission and vision through the work. That's a big one. There's a lot of people that minister and they, and they love the work, but they can't see the mission beyond the work. It's not built into their heart. And so when we talk about a faithful man, a man that's qualified for pastoral development, we want to know that within their heart, the function of their heart is the heartbeat of the mission. They've got the vision that's like a pastor's. They've got a vision for the nation's. It doesn't matter if they're cleaning toilets or they're wiping noses in the nursery, they recognize that it plays a part in a grander scheme. And that kind of perspective is unique. So so these are men that are worth considering for greater entrustment, faithful men. So faithfulness is critical. Second, zeal. You know, I've, I've often thought to myself, you know, what did Christ see in his disciples? What did Christ see in his disciples? Because there was a lot of lack in those men. Right? And in many regards, like, there's no rabbi that would have selected these men. Right? These men were not qualified for further development in any regard. Most of them were past the age for even consideration. These were men that were way beyond developmental age. These were fishermen, they were perceived as dumb. These were men that were hated by the public. Okay, if we're talking about men like Matthew. These just weren't men that you would think of selecting. And so I think to myself, well, what is it that all of these men had in common? And I think it's zeal. I think these men were selected because they were zealous. I mean, if if you think about some of the men that chose to follow Christ... (laughs) <laughs> like, hey man, I saw you under the tree. And then he's like, this is the Christ. <laughs> I'll follow you. I'll quit everything. I'll follow you. And, and Jesus is like, bro, you're going to, that's nothing. That's nothing. You're about to see some crazy stuff. I just think that some of these guys, it didn't take much. They were willing to drop their nets to follow who they thought the Messiah was. And, and so when I think about that, men that are willing to give up everything, that's, that there's a level of zeal that's required of them that's unique. There's something going on in their heart that's different than other men. And I think that we need to be looking for this too. One of the things I've learned doing ministry over the years is that I would much rather have an ignorant man full of zeal, full of zeal for the Lord and for the mission, than a knowledgeable man wise in his own conceits. I think a lot of us, we like to select and promote men that... that that know a lot, that are knowledgeable. And one of the things that all of us, we say it all the time, you know, we've got principles for this. It, it, when, we've, when, when people come into our church, maybe from another church that's like-minded, and they come with all this knowledge, and it, that can be impressive sometimes. Well, people are smart and they know the book, it can be impressive, but it doesn't mean they're qualified to lead people. I think a lot of times we select on knowledge or, 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 or experience, but it's really hard to take. That those types of men are sometimes the most unmalleable people on the face of the earth. And they will never get the DNA of your church. They might be able to serve, but they'll never get the DNA. They might not, ev- they might not ever get the heartbeat. You know, what I'm looking for is young, zealous men. Stupid, ignorant, don't know how to do anything, but faithful. And, and they give their life for it, and they want to know. They want to know. That's what I'm looking for. It's much easier to give uh, the zealous man knowledge than it is to teach the knowledgeable man zeal. The perfect example of this to me is Apollos. Acts 18:24. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born of Alexandria, an eloquent man. Now, in some regards, he was gifted. But check this out. He was mighty in the Scriptures. Came to Ephesus. But when this man was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And so, in many regards, he was also ignorant. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So, I think, I think that Apollos' primary quality was not that he was knowledgeable or that he was bold, but it was that he was zealous enough to go out into the streets and preach, Right? So I, I think that's the that's the distinguishing quality of Apollos is not his gifting or his knowledge, but his boldness. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Who, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him un, uh, unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into Caesarea, uh, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, him whom uh, who, when he had come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. And he mightily convinced the Jews. And that publicly showing in the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Okay, so here's my point. Is that, is that Apollos had a little knowledge. He had a little knowledge. And that little knowledge drove him to go and to preach. To preach boldly. Okay? And, and it wasn't until Aquila Priscilla came along and he was willing to submit himself to them to learn more that he was actually capable of preaching greater things and doing more. My, my point is is that the distinguishing quality of Apollos was his zeal. His zeal. That's what made him qualified for learning more. And zealous men tend to believe in God for crazy things. They tend towards boldness and fruitfulness, and they are less fearful of messy and painful work. Zealous men are less fearful of messy and painful work. So that's important. Zeal is important. The next thing is spiritual growth. Forgive me if I'm moving fast, but I want to make sure we cover everything today. Spiritual growth. Obviously, we want to filter out men who are gro- who, who, who are growing spiritually. We want them to make their way to the top, right? We, we want to select men who are growing in their knowledge. They're progressing in biblical learning. They desire to learn. Let me I'll just use a, a guy in my ministry. Okay, I've got a guy faithful and zealous in ministry. Okay? Guy I want to develop so bad. But he spent maybe two years of me investing in him before he realized, he used to say, I'm, I'm not smart enough. I take, I take an LFBI class. It's very difficult for me. Reading, reading books is very difficult for me to take the time to learn. It's, it's hard and it's, and it's difficult and I'm just too dumb. And I know that there's guys like this in our ministries, right? I want to learn more. I'm just too dumb to do it. And it was a faith proposition for him. And I, I, I could, I cannot I can't. He, he stunted his own growth, right? He got in his own way because he was, what he was telling me was, I want to grow, but I can only grow to a certain level because, because you know, I'm, I can't. But I, see, I saw pastor, pastoral leadership all over him. I'm like, all right, bro. And he stunted his own growth. And it wasn't until he decided that he could, actually could that I'm actually, now I'm seeing great fruitfulness, and I'm seeing, I'm seeing the spiritual growth I want to see. And here's my point, is that we want to select men who are willing to learn, to learn the Bible, to not just you know, implicitly understand dispensationalism, but have the ability to teach it to others. Because we want, the, we want them to go from knowing the content or regurgitating the content to having a mastery level understanding of the content, which means I not only know how to do it, but I can also teach it to others. We're trying to bring people along that path where, where, where they're, they're not just doing it on their own in private, but they have the ability to teach other people how to divide scriptures. They can teach them the principles of study. They can show them how to, to break down books like Hebrews and Matthew and Acts, and they know how to do that. And that requires spiritual growth and it requires knowledge. And all of us have a path for this. It's discipleship, and then it's D2, or whatever you call it in your church. Then it's LFBI, or WBI, or, or whatever it is, whatever training you use. And we want men that are going to be a part of that. We want to see men that are devoted to that kind of learning. Because if not, they're going to stunt their own growth, and they're going to hold themselves back, and they won't be able to train other people. We also want it to be sanctification, Okay, when we say spiritual growth, we don't just mean knowledge, we mean sanctification. It's, there's got to be a, a progress in conformity to Christ. We want to select men to invest in who are showing a change in terms of their holiness. They're becoming more and more holy. They're becoming more and more consecrated. You see a purity on them. You see a change in their countenance. You see them developing. The way they posture themselves, the way they hold themselves, the way they speak to other others reveals to you that there's a greater and greater holiness month over month. And year over year, these are the types of men we want. We want to see the pattern of Titus 2, 7, and 8 played out in their life. We want to see devotion. We want to see progress in their ministry leadership. These are the types of men. Men that that are ready for meat, and they've weaned themselves off milk. Paul was clear in his concern for the church in Corinth that despite his investment, despite all the resources, listen, The church in Corinth, check this out, the church in Corinth had Paul's investment, Apollos, Gaius, Cephas, Crispus, and then they had eight years of ministry under their belt. And Paul has to write to them and say, you're still babies and you need milk. So it's funny how we can have all these resources. We have the Living Faith Fellowship, we have LFBI, we have D1, we have all these things. And despite all the resources People can still come into our church year over year, eight years pass, and they still know spiritual growth. It can happen. It can happen. Those aren't the folks we're looking for. We're looking for people who've taken taken advantage of the resources that are at their disposal. So we we want to see people who are growing spiritually. The next thing is fruitfulness. An important measure in whether or not God has used them to lead is whether or not they've yielded fruit, right? So is there fruitfulness? Can we see fruitfulness in their life? No way around it. The disciples were supposed to be fishers of men. That, that They were selected, and they were told they would be trained to be fishers of men. Many of them were already fishermen. So again, they were predisposed for, to being fruitful. They understood the concept of going out and catching something and bringing it back. They got that concept. And apparently Jesus liked that. Jesus liked that they had that in their background. He chose a shepherd boy in David. He liked that the, the physical work that he had done was, w- inclined him to spiritual work. And he was going to train these men to be, uh, to be uh, fishers of men. And what that means is he wanted them to be fruitful. He wanted them to go out into the countryside and save souls. And that's what qualified them for their leadership. Is that they did that work? Is that what we're looking for? I mean, we, again, we might select a man for his zeal, and we might select a man because he's knowledgeable or he's growing in his knowledge of God's word. We might select that man. You might set him aside and say, I'm going to invest in this guy. But then if you look at his life, and he hasn't led anyone to Christ, is he qualified for leading? Because you will, if you develop that man and he's not fruitful, guess what? He's going to reproduce himself. And we want to reproduce evangelists. We want men who are inclined to evangelism and have a zeal for evangelism so that when they grow old and they're teaching others, they're impressing upon other people a zeal for evangelism. We want to see fruitfulness in their life. We want to see them discipling. We want to know that when they're walking around, people are following after them because they're interested and they they want to know more. We got to see fruitfulness in people's lives. Is that what we're looking for? Because if a man is unwilling to lead his neighbors or his coworkers to Christ, then how will he lead the church in that same in, in the lifestyle of evangelism? Luke nineteen seventeen says, and he said unto them, "Well, uh, well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, have thou authority over ten cities." Okay. And so, you know, Sam was talking about uh, briefly about this particular um, parable last night. And the, point, the thing I want to point out here is that there were these faithful people who were faithful to multiply little. And because they were faithful to multiplying a little, they were given more. And that's exactly what we're talking about. If we see stewards in our ministry that are fruitful, then that should be a qualifier for having more responsibility in terms of leadership. Do we see that in our ministry? Do we see that in our leaders? And if so, we know that we can entrust them with more. That's what Jesus is teaching us. I want to see that the men I promote are winsome and prone to evangelism and drawing in new disciples to the body of Christ. Fifth, they need to be respected. There are zealous men and there are fruitful men that are sometimes not respected. They may, they may be faithful or they may be knowledgeable, but man, sometimes they're just not respected. <clears throat> Another ministry filter is whether or not this disciple has a good testimony among God's people. This is one of Paul's filters. Acts 16.1, Then came he to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus. The son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. And so Paul relied on the testimony of other people to know whether or not Timotheus was capable of the work. And if the testimony of your leaders in your ministry is, is, is well, they're a little contentious. Right? Or, um, you know, they hoard the responsibilities. They're not sharing or they're not or they're not fruitful or whatever it might be if the testimony isn't right if not well reported of then maybe then you you shouldn't consider them if if people aren't prone to follow them there's something there there's something to that if they've been in ministry for 4 or 5 years and people just have a hard time listening to them maybe it's because they're pious maybe it's because they're a little arrogant when they speak maybe it's because, and not that these things can't be trained out of a person not that not, not that a person can't change all i'm saying is then when we're looking for leaders, we should really be considering whether or not they're well reported of. Six, gifting. As a general rule, <clears throat> um, because my, because my primary objective is church planting. Okay, that's why I lead the college and adult ministry, and that's why I work in LFBI. It's because my heart is to see churches planted and missionaries sent all over the world, and I want to replace myself too. One day I, I'll die. Or one day, maybe I'll, I don't know, maybe I'll age out of kaya. I hope not. You know, maybe when there's too many gray hairs, they'll just be like, bro, it's time, time to retire the college and young adult gig. I hope not, though, because I, I love training the leaders. But I'm looking for men who are prone to high character and the gifts of a bishop. Okay, I want to know, I want to know that there's gifting there that looks like a bishop, that looks like 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> I think I'm getting whatever Eric's got. It's allergies, I think. The Georgia allergies. <laughs> My body doesn't know about those. <clears throat> so I'm looking for men who have a gifting. Now, this is probably the least important filter for me. Okay, I, I wanna say this. Uh, this is probably the least important filter to me, but it's worth continually observing. <clears throat> because I don't mind developing leaders that don't end up to be pastors. If they're just great leaders in a, different, a con, certain context, like if they're great administrators for the church, like if they're, if they're 45, 50 years old and they just function in an executive role and they're making sure that ministry runs great, but they don't actually lead a whole lot of people, man, praise the Lord. Right? I don't mind that. I don't, the gifting thing, I don't get hung up on that. But I am looking for men that have pastoral gifting and are prone to that. We know every believer has a gift, and every gift is beneficial to the body. So, the nature of that gifting would not keep me necessarily from making a deeper investment. But I am focusing my attention on developing pastors. Now, I want to also point out to you that that gifting alone is not good enough. Um, And the problem is that the mistake that most pastors make is that they start here, they start with gifting. And they'll select a person to invest in based on their gifting. And they'll give them leadership responsibilities based on the fact that they're good speakers. They're good administrators. They're good at this or that. And they'll select that man because he's good at something. And I'm just going to say, that's super dangerous. And a, and a lot of, you know, I hear stories. You know, the great thing about these conferences, you get to sit down with pastors and you talk to them. And they got stories about stuff they inherited. And that's not always fun. And you inherit, you inherit people that, are, that were selected based on gifting. And they have a leadership position in the church because they, at some point along the way, someone says, well, this person knows a lot. I'm going to give them lots of responsibility. And, and we know that that doesn't work out. That's not how we reproduce the DNA. A person's gifting can blind us from seeing their character. We can't afford to promote men because they're great communicators or because of their physical gifting. Because that doesn't necessarily correlate with spiritual maturity. We need spiritual maturity. So, so that's my list. There's probably more, but those are the things that I look for. The next thing is this is what is required in a pastor's investment? What am I supposed to do once I've found the men that I want to invest in? Say you found a guy. There's a guy that stands out, you know? And that's the way it should start in a small church or church plant. Maybe it's just one dude, maybe it's two guys. Maybe you've got five to invest in like this. Let's talk about uh, the things that we need to pay attention to once a leader, uh, a leader circle has been developed, a leadership circle has been developed, and it's time to invest in them. And the first thing I think we should consider is our proximity to those we invest in. That's our proximity. One of the things you have to get used to is that in order to make the long-term investment that needs to be made, you need to let this person or these people into your life so that they can walk with you, which is not always easy for pastors. Back to my original point, we're busy. It's hard to invite people in, especially at the level that I'm about to suggest needs to be done. <clears throat> it sounds daunting. It sounds overwhelming. It sounds like a lot of work. And maybe you can relate to Elijah. In 2 Kings 2, 6, And Elijah said unto him, being Elisha, Terry, I pray thee, hear, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they two went on. Actually, this scenario repeats itself twice in this chapter. Elisha is insistent on going with Elijah, and Elijah's like, Bro, you're exhausting, and I need a break. He's like, No, I'm coming. And so Elijah's like, okay, let's go. And they go, they go. All right, Elisha's like a puppy dog. And, and okay, let's, I'm going to be honest with you. That's how I was with Sam. I wanted to be around him all the time. And I, I know that it was probably obnoxious. <laughs> On his office door, right? Hey, you doing anything? What's going on in here? He's like, oh, I'm just counseling this marriage that's about to fall apart. Come on in. No. No, I, 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 I tried to be respectful of his time. But, but I, did, I did want to do I did that with, when I was younger. I did that with Dan, and I did that with Sam. I followed them around. I wanted to do what they wanted to do, what they did. And, and if you're a leader like uh, Elijah, it's not always easy to let people in that closely. I mean, one of the things we know about Elijah is that he was a bit of a recluse. I mean, it's real ironic that this dude was upset. Where are all the other prophets? I'm the only one. Bro, you want to be the only one. I got other people, but bro, you're a a loner, man. Prone to despair. You got to let people in. It requires walking together. Follow me. Clearly, we learn from Jesus that walking together is a critical component to any discipleship relationship. And each of the four Gospels repeats the follow-me stories in every single variation of the Gospels. Every story that's told about Christ, the follow-me stories show up. Because it's important. It's important to discipleship. For instance, this example in Luke. For he was astonished at all that were with him at the draw of the fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the son of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not from henceforth, thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Now, believe it or not, I've heard theologians say that Jesus learned this follow me principle from Aristotle. Because this is the way Aristotle taught. He would walk, he would walk, uh, you know, around and, and let his pupils follow him. And he just spoke to them and this follow. He, they say that this, but okay. Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 says this is what God did with Adam. this god walks with men he spends time with them and he develops them this is how this is how god did it and this is what we should do too god loves relationships and walking with select men and i want to point something else, else out is what what one of us pastors couldn't use couldn't use more close friends. That's just a side note. Sometimes pastoring has been the loneliest thing I've ever done in my whole life. And I feel like I have no one. But the truth is, is if I'm developing leaders, I do have, I have friends. And if they're developed far enough, they can be intimate friends. And I can share things with them, and I can be close to them, and I can let them in a way that's really unique, that's actually beneficial to me. Here's a here's key point. Pastoral discipleship requires an up-close example, and that's what we need to be. The tough thing for pastors and leaders is making time and seeing the value. For Christ, these men were invited to live with him. They live with him. Now, while as Americans, we don't quite have the stomach for that, Right? I don't think Troy's disciples are moving in with him anytime soon. I don't think your wife would appreciate that. No. But, but it does point to the magnitude of the investment necessary. So what does this mean? First of all, it means, sorry to break it to you, lots of meetings. Sorry, for those of you who hate meetings, it means lots of meetings. You need to count the cost right here. It means lots of meetings. For all of us, the guy we're most likely gonna train is not on our staff. Like the majority of the men that we're gonna train, they're not on staff. That means they can't do a meeting with you at one o'clock. They can't do lunch with you. They're working their job. And so when I say count the cost, what I mean is it's gonna cost you some evenings. It's gonna cost you probably some time away from your family. It's going to cost you, to, you're going to have to sacrifice something because you're not, you're not going to be able to train that guy the way he needs to be trained if he's at his day, job all day long and you clock out of your pastoral gig at five o'clock and you go home and you're doing your family thing. But all the while, that guy needs an investment in the evening. It's the only way to do it. You're going to have to make a sacrifice of your time. And we need to balance that. We need to balance that with our families. That's between you and the Lord and your family to work that out. But the point is, it's going to require sacrifice of time. Sam Miles meets with us uh, with the elders. Okay, and what I mean by that in our church that means the pastors and the the, me, the the there's a select group of men who've been invited into eldership. It's because they teach, because everything we just talked about before is is true in general of their lives, and we invite them into a meeting. And every Tuesday we meet for an hour, and we talk about ministry. We talk about ministry philosophy. We talk about counseling issues. We talk about missions agendas. We talk about all kinds of stuff. And it gives us exposure to Sam, and it allows those men to catch a glimpse of his heart and to align their, the pattern of their heartbeat with his. It's a critical meeting. and We do it every single week. We do it before our prayer meeting. A lot of you have Wednesday night meetings uh, where you do services with your church. Maybe before that is a good time to meet. Let me, I'm just going to share briefly with how I meet with my leaders, okay? I'm, I meet with Bible study leaders, okay? So my, my emphasis in the college and young adult ministry is on developing leaders in the context of Bible study. So when I recognize all those six qualities that we talked about in a man or a woman, I'm working at getting them their own flock. So we'll divide a Bible study, and we'll send this group this direction, and we'll send this group to another neighborhood to go be evangelical or another campus to go be evangelical to make an investment. And their job is to counsel and to love and invest in that small flock. Maybe it's five, six people. I've got several of my Bible study leaders are here today. Okay, And they make that investment, and I watch them, and that's how I develop them. And so in order to do that right, I meet with the girl Bible study leaders. Sorry, Ladies lady Bible study leaders, uh, one time a month. And I meet with the men Bible study leaders one time a month. And it's usually about an hour and a half meeting. Um, the, the meetings look different, though, because I'm not developing pastors out of the women, okay? I'm, I'm developing loving mothers, nurturing mothers is what I'm doing. And I'm trying to be a father to them because a lot of them don't have fathers and the ones that they do have aren't great they're not spiritually minded and I want to be a father to them so I give them an opportunity to rid me and make fun of me and I and I you know I coo with their little babies they'll bring their babies sometimes right Julie will bring their baby and and uh, and I talk about their week and I love them and we talk about their bible studies and then they're gone but with the guys it's different the guys it's a little bit more like boot camp it's way it's more intentional and when I meet with them the, the content of those meetings is just like the meeting that we talked about the other day where, where, where Chris Best meets with the leaders and they talk about purpose, passion, and practice. But to be more explicit, um, I'm sharing the vision behind our activities. We've got all these activities going on. I'm sharing the vision behind that. I'm discussing the ministry philosophy time and time again, different aspects of it. What's our ministry philosophy on dating relationships? Okay, what's our ministry philosophy on, um, on, on development for missions, okay? What, how, do, how do we think about or perceive when someone's ready for this or that? How should we approach when someone's struggling with this or that? We're talking through those things, counseling situations. I let them ask questions. I talk about the health of their Bible study. I talk about the health of Kaya. I let them point out to me things that they think we, think we need to, to work on. And that investment, it's back and forth, it's push and pull, and all the while I'm developing them to think like a pastor. And we pray together, and we weep together, and we talk about souls, we talk about those that we've lost along the way, and we share that, we're comrades, and I've invited them in to the circle, and I reveal my heart, and I talk about things that I can't talk about with the class at large at the point I see men in this group maturing and advancing in ministry, then I invite them into the meeting with Sam. So of those Bible study leaders, some of them begin to be perceived as elders and respected in the ministry, and they've they've had opportunities to teach, and so I invite them in, and then they begin to join Sam in the the elders' meeting. Does, Does that make sense? I'm hoping I'm painting a picture of how we do things. Again, you do what you need to do. What I'm emphasizing is that there needs to be a path. There needs to be a plan. There needs to be an inner working because we can't do this without being intentional. The other thing is we need to have lots of fellowship with those that we're investing in. Let them get to know their pastor. Break bread with them. Invite them into your home. Let them get to know your family. Let them play with your children. This kind of investment is where I spend the majority of my relational work in the ministry. That's what I do. I don't spend... Here's the beauty of this. Can I, can I explain to you... I want to testify that this works. These Bible study leaders take 90% of all the counseling situations in the ministry. People aren't running to me for counseling. They're not, com- they're not coming to me and crying and saying, I need help with blah, 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 blah. blah. They're going to their Bible study leaders first. And their Bible study leaders are being trained to handle those situations and they're doing an amazing job. And they save me so much time and energy, time and energy that I can devote to the vision of the ministry. And that's because I'm taking the time to develop them. The next thing we need to think about in terms of developing these leaders is risk-taking. Risk-taking. Within this circle of disciples, we need to learn to take risks. We need to learn to give away ministry. They need some serious Skin in the game. So key point, giving away ministry primes discipleship, uh, disciples for caring like a shepherd does. Giving away ministry primes disciples for caring like a shepherd. We can't expect people to care for the ministry at the level that we do if they aren't given corporate stock options. Right? I mean, isn't that why companies do that? It's because they want their employees to have skin in the game. There's something about that. They need an opportunity to either gain or lose something. And I love this principle as it's exemplified in John chapter 6 in the feeding of the 5,000. And I won't read it to you, but if you remember the story, Jesus breaks the bread initially, and then he gives it to his disciples, and they do all the physical work. They're doing everything. They're handing out the bread. They're, They're walking around and meeting the needs of the people, Jesus did the initial breaking, but they're doing, they're doing the continual breaking, and the, the 5,000, the needs of the 5,000 are met. And I, and I think that this points to the idea that we're supposed to break off a piece of ministry so that other people have personal stock in it, and they can, they can by faith, go and, and make the investment to the body at large. We need to give it away. We need to, them to have oversight of the people. They should have their own flock of some sort. If you're going to develop a leader that's pastoral in nature, they need an opportunity to oversee people. They need to know the joys and the woes of leading other people. They need to know that. They need to have their heart broken. I had a young lady who came to me probably a a couple months ago. And um, she she was just saying, hi, we were greeting each other. And we're just talking, I said, how's Bible study going? She's a Bible study leader now. Only, only for, she's only been a Bible study for about six months. She was invested in, she was trained for the work, and, and, and another leader handed off the work to her, okay? Um, and so she came to me, and she was beginning to explain it to me, and she started crying. And she said something that I'll never forget for the rest of my life. She said, I don't know if I'm crying because it's so hard or because it's the greatest thing I've ever done. She couldn't distinguish between the two things. That's the heart of a shepherd. It's hard, it's burdensome, but it's the greatest thing I could ever imagine myself doing. As a kid, I dreamed about being Michael Jordan. Now that I'm a pastor, I don't want to be anything else. It's the, it's the greatest gift that could ever be given to me. And when someone else catches that, that flicker, whew, and it reminds me that people are worth taking risks on and that they're worth us giving oversight to. I've got a new Bible study leader. His name is Dylan. <clears throat> and... Uh, He just started, you know, uh, so here, let me explain this first. Some of you know Jorge Pietro Giovanna. You might not know how to say his name, but you know him, you've seen him around, okay? Uh, Jorge has been a, a, a very fruitful Bible study leader in Kaya. He planted a Bible study at the Art Institute campus. It began to thrive. It grew so much that we had to start another Bible study, so we planted a Bible study at Rockhurst because that's where Dylan goes, and Dylan has a heart for reaching Rockhurst campus, the Catholic school in Kansas City. So Dylan goes to school there, and he's, he's investing, and he's grown enough. He's still young. He's still young. There's a lot of questions that I have about his readiness. <clears throat> and, but we're giving Dylan over Jorge's Bible study because Jorge's decided that he's going to go work with Mike in Boston. And we're cool with that. We're excited for Jorge because Jorge's proven that he's faithful, and we've been developing him for years Because we've done this stuff in his life. Now it's Dylan's turn. Dylan has a Bible study. Dylan and I met for coffee. Dylan is afraid. (laughs) He's afraid. He's He's afraid of the counseling. He's afraid of leading. He's afraid of how people perceive him. And I love it. I love it. And I said, good. Good. This is how it should be. This, this is going to lead you to trusting the Lord. This is going to teach you what it means to put all of your faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that you're not capable of doing anything, and that any fruit that's, that's garnered from this Bible study, any, any, any person that comes to Christ, and any disciple that's made, it will never be you. Because you're just as terrible now as you will be six months from now, two years from now. You're not, you are not fit for this work, but God's counted you worthy. So let's go do it. And that would never happen if I wasn't willing to take risks on people. We also need to share the pulpit with these types of men. Once a month, I turn the pulpit over to a young man in my ministry, generally a guy that's been through some LFBI classes and leads a Bible study. That's the qualifiers for me. They might be different for you. But I want to know that he's not going to botch things on a Sunday morning, you know, accidentally teach the sign gifts or something. You know, I need to know he knows the book. Okay, so it's got to be a guy I've invested in for a while. He leads a Bible study that I trust in that level, and he's been through some LFBI classes. I had a guy preach like that for me on Sunday. His name is David Morlo. At least that's how he says his name this week. He changed like six months ago, he changed the pronunciation of his name, and I can't keep track. Who does that? <laughs> but anyway, he preached for me on Sunday, and he, he, he did a great job, and he's cutting his teeth. He's cutting his teeth. We also need to encourage personal vision. I try to give as much autonomy to my Bible study leaders as possible. I don't tell them what to do. I don't boss them around. I give them space. I give them space to experiment in terms of outreach and strategy. They've got a framework. They've got a philosophy. They know what they're supposed to be doing in general. We often discuss their objectives, but it's up to them to execute a strategy. And again, I learned this from Sam. Okay, so I'll say this. Um, When we first started the church and he gave me, the responsibility of the youth ministry. I thought that he would hold my hand through that process. And he did not. He didn't. When he said he was letting me do this, he was letting me do this. I mean, it was like, get out of my office, go do something. <laughs> and, and so I, in those early years, I thought I'm not getting enough feedback. What if I'm ruining everything? Okay, okay. And uh, so what he did is he sat back and he just watched. And I know that if something was going wrong, he would have spoken up. But what he was teaching me was that I didn't need him. I needed the Lord. He was watching. He knew. I didn't think he knew, but he knew. He was watching. He knew what was going on. And he was making sure I wasn't going to burn the church down, which is sometimes what youth pastors do. Okay? We've heard those stories. James. Stories like that. Uh, but, but, but he was watching, and he was letting me execute a vision. He was letting me work through strategy. He was developing me. And they need, they need this kind of space. Your leaders need that kind of space too. I ask my Bible study leaders every year to write and submit a vision for ministry. Every year, At the beginning of the year. It's only four questions that I give them. I'm going to say them to you. You can use them if you want. It's up to you. But, but I, I have them write a vision statement and submit it to me and I read through it and I'll give a short response back to everybody. I don't have time for a thorough response. Some of these folks like to write pages and I'm not not responding in kind. They get a short statement back, like I love you, I'm praying for such, such, and such. But here's the questions. First of all, who are your Pauls and why? Who are the people that are leading you and why? Because you always need to have a Paul in your life no matter what stage of ministry you're in. And I want to know who they're going to be. Because sometimes they change year over year. They get in a different ministry or different areas of ministry, and they have a new Paul. I want to know who it is, I want to know why that's your Paul. And who are your Timothys and why? Who's following you? Why are they following you? What's the context? Explain it to me. Third, I ask, what are you trusting God for in ministry this year? Very simple questions. What are you trusting God for in ministry this year? And usually that's in the context of Bible study. They're talking about how they're going to reach the campus or they're going to reach this neighborhood or how they're going to reach this populace of people somewhere in our, our city. We've got people who have vision to reach like uh, refugees and things like that in, in parts of our city. And so they, they express those visions that God has given them and the things that they're trusting for God to do in the year to come. And then the fourth question is, how do you see God leading you in the future? Now, this might change from year to year. You'd think that question would get the same response, but sometimes it changes. Sometimes they don't really know but I want to know that they're getting glimpses of who they're becoming. Who might they be five years from now? Do they want a church plant? Do they love missions? You know, what is it that they're hoping to do? Do they want to take a, you know, a one-year, you know, do they want to go to Kenya for a year and invest there? We've got a church that we're trying to develop in, in Kenya. Do they, do they want to do that? Is that on their heart? What is it God, they feel that God's calling them to? Sometimes it's crazy. You know, sometimes it's ridiculous. And on my mind, it's like, no, that ain't happening. Not anytime soon, right? But that's okay. It's space for them to dream. I mean, we'll vet everything. We'll vet everything. I mean, that's what the leadership is there for. But the point is, I want them dreaming, and I want them asking the Lord, where am I going? What are you doing with all of this? Am I church planting? What am I doing? Okay, so the next thing is proper expectations. What should we expect from these relationships? Each individual will require a uniquely different approach. And there are some guiding expectations that everyone should adhere by. The first one is this. We should expect to be continuous in our relationship. Okay? It should be continuous. This is a relationship that God will have in your life as a pastor or a leader, whether they stay in your church or not. Okay, a good example of that is Sam and Alan. It's a good example of that. Alan will always be Sam's pastor. And if Sam needs anything, he'll always go to Alan. It's beautiful. James and Joe. It'll always be that way, whether you're in the same church or not. And so you've got to have the expectation up front that this relationship that I'm making, it might be a tax on my life forever. This person might call me at any time 40 years from now, call me with a need. That's the kind of investment that I'm making here. Your mentorship is potentially a lifetime commitment, so do it with gravity and sobriety. We should expect it to be consistent. That's the next thing. We should expect it to be consistent. It should be an investment that, that they take seriously as well. Even if your meetings lack formality, even if your meeting and, it's, and, and the meetings are fairly lax and it's loose, it should be approached with, with soberness. And I'm going to use this as an opportunity to say that there are guys that are invited to the elders' meeting that don't come. They don't tune in. I don't know why they wouldn't do that. It doesn't make sense to me. It says something about where they're at to have that resource at their hands and not not, not be able to make time for it. So we want them to take it seriously, too. We expect consistency from them, too. Everyone involved in this kind of lifestyle investment has to acknowledge its value and take it seriously. The next thing is we should expect leaders to be accountable. We should hold leaders to high standards. Areas that fall short uh, time and time again, we need to make sure that we're willing to sit down with them and address those issues. Accountability is a big deal, and they have to know that. They have to expect it. Next, we should expect discretion. This is a big one. Uh, Among leaders, uh, there needs to be a clear understanding that in order to guard the hearts of each other and the congregation, we need to be careful with the information that we share with one another. Okay, so there's there's a sworn secrecy in our Bible study leaders meeting. And if we avoid at all costs using names, but sometimes there's situations in the college and young adult ministry where we have to share a name and we've got to be open about what's going on. And usually people already know anyway. But here's my point to them is that when we share this information, it has to be discreet. And the reason it needs to be discreet is we believe that God is going to redeem all people. We hope with all things. And so if a a person recovers themselves from the snare, but you've besmirched their name because you left this meeting and you talked about what's going on, and suddenly they have a reputation now, you've just hindered the work of the Holy Spirit. So what we talk about, you don't get to talk about. That stays here, that's part of the pact we should expect growth. The leaders we invest in should be growing in their faith and capacity. Even if that growth is incremental, even if it's small, even if it's slow, we should expect growth. Sometimes it's very slow, but we should expect it. We need to continue to observe them in action, particularly in seasons where they face trial. That's such a proving thing, isn't it? When you watch your leaders go through a hard situation, that's proving. We need to watch them in those seasons. We need to coach them through hardship. And then we should expect them to imitate this process in their ministries. In time, our hope is that our leaders will be reproducing leaders within their own sphere of influence. And their fruit will also require their own type of pastoral leadership. So so my Bible study leaders are expected to train up an associate. Part of the gig is that they've got a right-hand man or woman, and they're training that person because that person might someday also have a Bible study. And at that point, they will also join us in our meetings. And they will be a part of the training too. And man, that's beautiful to watch. To watch the leaders that you're investing in producing leaders. It's wonderful when I see my, my men reach out to me and say, hey, can I invite so-and-so uh, into the Bible study leaders meeting? Because I think that they're ready. And sometimes I have to say n- No. But the point is, is that they desire to see growth in their own flock. And see, it's, it's also beautiful when I see guys show up to the elders meeting with the pastors. It's awesome. 2 Timothy two. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. We want to see that. This last thing is really important. I've only got a couple minutes. <clears throat> but I want to I talk about this last thing, and that's coaching. The last thing to address is the idea of coaching. The beauty of LFBI is that it provides a large bulk of the teaching um, and knowledge-based training for, uh, for me and, and the people that I invest in. So I can entrust that Greg Axe and Alan Shelby and Jeff Bartell or Troy or Sam or Chris or James or Joe or whoever it might be, Tony, all these men, they're in trusted hands. And they've got the best. They've got the best teaching in whatever area that that is, that influence, whether it's Dan or whoever it might be, they're getting the best teaching possible. Okay? And as they're growing in their knowledge of God's Word, I have space because someone else is making that kind of investment. I mean, I preach to them on Sundays and I teach, I teach. but My point is that I get to focus a large bulk of my ministry uh, initiative on training in ministry, in the local church context. I get to, I'm not busy preparing the lessons on, you know, uh, YKJV, manuscript evidence, ain't right? Anybody better than Alan Shelby at teaching that, okay? I trust that to him. So instead of spending eight weeks on trying to teach something that I can't teach as well as Alan, I get to take that time and energy and focus it on developing pastors in my local church, I get to get my hands dirty with them. I get to live life with them. I I get to be their coach. Perhaps a better way to look at it is that I get to be a father. First Corinthians four fifteen. For though we have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet have have ye not many fathers? For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. And so I'm I'm completely fine. This isn't you know. I know these guys aren't a bunch of gnostics. You know this that's what the corinthians were facing these are men that i can trust and i can invite i can invite 10,000 instructors in if i trust them if they're the right instructors because then i get to focus my energy be, on being a dad i didn't have a dad <clears throat> I, I sure am glad that I get to be one now. I sure am glad that I have had fathers in the ministry that taught me how to be a father. And now I get to do it. And when they bury me, um, I hope that my discipleship trail so busy and active and so complex that no one can make any sense of it. But there's no chart in the lobby that will cover the fatherhood that I've invested. That's irreplaceable. We can't measure it. We can't know it. It's not a tally on a wall. The only one that can understand it and measure it is our Father in heaven. He's the only one that sees it and knows it for what it is. He's the only one that can make sense of it. Our job is to simply do it, to live it, and to be full of faith. So I spend time with people. I listen to them. I share friendship with them. I teach them a more perfect way. I walk and I weep with them in the the valley seasons of their life. And I provide them with constructive feedback. That's what I do. And my my prayer is that Midtown Baptist Temple would plant 300 churches. Here's the conclusion, okay? The discipleship lessons are not enough to shepherd our flocks, to be everything that God has us to be and to do. A pervasive discipleship requires a level of intentionality that we have to plan for and expect. And I think we should all have faith for a discipleship that turns the world upside down. So I'm praying that for all of your churches. Um, This room is full of the people that I respect more than anyone else in the world, and I'm looking at pastors and leaders that are way more qualified in many regards to teach this content than me, and so it's a privilege for me to stand up here and just talk about what I do, but um, I pray for you, and uh, if you're not fruitful, I'm not fruitful, and so I'm trusting the Lord uh, that God will use you and that discipleship will continue to thrive in your churches. Thanks, guys. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit LFFellowship.com. God bless.